85% of companies have a purpose statement, which doesn't actually mean anything to anybody. It's a fluffy statement often done by an ad agency, which doesn't anchor into specific business initiatives. And we do think that developing a purpose and an ESG focus is a business uh, uh, exercise requiring specificity. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard Bruce Simpson, a senior advisor to Blackstone Investments and the CEO of the Schwartzman Foundation, make the point that corporate purpose can't be just a marketing exercise. Rather, companies need to thoughtfully define their purpose and then reinforce it through environmental, social, and governance initiatives. During today's discussion, which we recorded in 2021, we will take a deep dive into the S, or social, aspects of ESG, which the pandemic brought into particularly sharp focus. We will hear more from Bruce, who along with Vivian Hunt, a senior partner in our London office, will discuss how companies can make this often underemphasized aspect of ESG more central to their businesses. Joining Bruce and Vivian today is Franz Pasha, who leads corporate affairs globally for PayPal, a company that has made purpose and social concerns the guiding lights for its strategy. This is the third and final episode of our series on ESG. You can find our prior podcasts about the role of ESG and purpose and about stakeholder capitalism on your podcast player and on the Inside the Strategy Room page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. Franz, Bruce, and Vivian, thank you so much for making the time with us today. Vivian, why don't you start us off by explaining some of the evolving dynamics around companies' societal impact and why it has become so important and widely discussed today. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Like Bruce, I've done a lot of work on the impact of multiple variables on performance, you know, what do high-performing companies do well? And we find that all of them have a wider aperture over a longer period of time, looking at a broader range of issues for their employees, their investors, many stakeholders, and over mid- and long-term time horizons. And I think 2020-21 is teaching us anything. It's that these intersections of health, the economy, technology, social factors, and of course, uh, geopolitics are more profound than ever. I think in the 50s, a a CEO might have said, I spend a lot of time on regulation or external relations. Now it's a much more complicated landscape. How do you understand it, track what stakeholders are doing, tear down, give real insight into their needs, and then link it to your strategy? Because we all know that it does link to value. We're not only doing it for economic value, but it has to link to value. So how do you define that more broadly and then bring it to bear in ways that your stakeholders see and recognize? There's also an issue about resilience. We find that companies that have a broader aperture around purpose and ESG are also more resilient. And I think, uh, again, we've all seen the need for that over the course of this year. You know, we know some of the downsides of the economic crisis have been very stark and asymmetrical. For example, 54% of COVID job losses have impacted women uh, who are about 39% of the economy, disproportionately frontline jobs, disproportionately lower paid jobs. We know that anyone in, uh, for example, the UK that is in a lower paid job, say 10 pounds, $15 an hour or less, is um, 40% more likely to be uh, furloughed 
or put on redundancy or just not have the same job to go back to. Technology substitution, yes, a good thing for access, efficiency, data, transparency, but if you don't have the skills, the job you left may not be the job you go back to. Think about airlines or hospitality as an extreme example. And then of course, income. You know, what's sustainable and livable income? What other pressures are on your household? One income family, two income family. Older relatives, not older relatives. Um, how do you factor those in and really measure them? So we know that when we don't get it right, there's a real cost. And also that high-performing companies that do get it right perform faster. Thank you, Vivian. And, and Bruce, let's talk now about what the S or social part of ESG actually includes in relation to corporations. We think S covers uh, um, a few factors. First, treating workers fairly, paying frontline wages, which uh, enable people to have a net disposable income, uh, which goes beyond just paying for food and rent. Uh, and that in a context in the US where frontline wages in real terms have not gone up in 40 years. Um, uh, second, uh, investing in employee skills, investing in training and development so they can promote themselves up to higher echelons on the economic ladder. Truly living diversity uh, and equity and inclusion, uh, creating products that contribute positively to society, improving communities of operation too and engaging on that dimension, and then moving from brands to stands. This last one is controversial. Uh, we all saw in the press with MLB's decision to move the All-Star Baseball game out of Georgia, a number of CEOs stepped up and spoke out on that. And this is a context where they're sort of damned if they do, damned if they don't. Employees expect them to take a stand uh, uh, on, on topics, social topics, which go well beyond what their products actually do or their services do. And consumers, there's actually 38 of consumers today who are currently boycotting uh, products or services due to a, mitch, a mismatch uh, in value. So there's a drive to step up. On the other hand, of course, you can be uh, criticized on multiple dimensions, and in particular where other people will see that your stand on that, on that topic is inconsistent with other things that the company uh, might be doing. Understood. So these can be controversial decisions and can lead business leaders to feel somewhat exposed. Given this, how would you advise companies to best determine which aspects of their social impact they should focus on first? Uh, um, one of the key things that companies have to know is what is my vulnerability today and what is my strength uh, in this ESG space. Companies can look at themselves outside in and calibrate what is my environmental footprint, what is my social footprint, what's my governance footprint. And then underneath that, uh, those buckets, what are my vulnerabilities and then also what are my strengths? Where then can I step up and really make a difference? If you don't know what your vulnerability is, the critics will immediately rise up as soon as you start speaking about ESG or purpose externally and they'll criticize you for it. So better to get there first. Now, 85% of companies have a purpose statement, which doesn't actually mean anything to anybody. It's a fluffy statement, often done by an ad agency, which doesn't anchor into specific business initiatives. And we do think that developing a purpose and an ESG focus is a business exercise requiring specificity. PayPal has this clear purpose statement which France will elaborate on. And then they cascade that down into an understanding of where are their vulnerabilities, like cybersecurity, for example, user financial data they have to protect, and where are their strengths? 
they have really good data, for example, on working capital challenges in the community where they're actually funding uh, working capital. That's a real strength that they can develop. And then they've then got very clear platforms, employees, social innovation, environmental sustainability, and responsible business practices. And then they've got clear commitments, which are measurable, uh, and where people are really accountable for delivering on them. Franz, we're really glad to have you with us today. And to learn more about how PayPal arrived at its purpose statement, can you take us through the process of developing that? And how did you engage and bring your full organization along on that journey? Yeah, you know, I like to think about and discuss this journey as a five-year journey for us. Um, we had the opportunity um, to essentially refound PayPal after we were spun out of eBay in 2015. And a, a group of us came into um helped to lead PayPal. And the first task that we took on was to articulate a new mission with a, with a strong central purpose uh, and values that would reinforce that mission. And we also defined a strategy that was built in combination and to reinforce the mission and values uh, of the company. So if you look at that core, so we had a unique opportunity to create an interlocking system of our purpose, our values and our strategy. And our employees have become a huge force uh, for the mission of the company and in holding us also accountable to live our values because we put them up on the wall and we try to, we make sure that we are walking the talk. So if you think about our central purpose, you know, we articulate it as, you know, democratizing financial services and e-commerce, serving underserved communities, so that they could connect to the financial system and have the benefits of the global economy and to improve the financial health uh, of customers and communities who needed affordable, easy, safe ways to connect to the global economy. So as we built forward, we've had a lot of, a lot of interesting moments where, where we stood on our values and, and really took some, some, you know, there were some difficult moments along the way of having to, uh, to learn what it means to really live your values uh, both mm -hmm. internally and externally. I understand that one of those difficult moments was when you saw the results of the financial security audit you did of your workers to try and understand whether they had enough income to live on. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and then what you did with the results? Yeah, that, that was another sort of moment for us that I think also prepared us uh, for how we would experience, for how our employees would experience uh, the period of the pandemic. So this would have, this is, this goes back to 2018 into 2019. We were very focused on building products like PayPal Working Capital, other consumer uh, products that enable people to move and manage money in affordable ways, our remittance uh, focus on reducing the cost of digital remittances. And as we studied the data, we started to think hard about our own employee base. We have a broad range of employees that some are working um, in call centers and operation centers and others are doctors and are, you know, lawyers and consultants and PhDs and engineers. But we decided we better understand better um, what, how our employees were faring in the global economy. Um, we also had an employee emergency fund that we'd had in place to deal with sort of employee crises with it so that we could help out. And we started to see that some of the requests were for seemingly small crises that one wouldn't think would necessarily derail someone's finance, finances. 
And so we did a really, we took a clear survey of our employees and we found, and it was a surprising outcome, uh, we found that about a third of our employees were struggling to make ends meet paycheck to paycheck, like other Americans and Europeans and uh, people in, in Asia as well. And that was a surprise to us because we pay at market or well above market in every market. But clearly capitalism you know, wasn't working um, for this portion of the economy and the market wasn't uh, delivering an outcome that enabled people to have um, what many call a livable wage. So we worked with nonprofits who are expert in the area and, and uh, academics, and we developed an approach that we called net disposable income. And we, we looked and we said, okay, what do our employees have after they've paid their essential living expenses and their taxes? And what we found was that for many of the employees in that third of the company that we, did, that we had um, assessed were, were, were struggling financially, that they had four to six percent net disposable income in many cases. And we set as our goal 20 percent net disposable income. And to do that, we had to take immediate action. I want to say last year, but actually it was 2019. And we've been looking at this from a stakeholder perspective that our employees are our most important constituency. And it was unacceptable for us, given who we were and what we stood for, that we would have employees that were feeling financially insecure or that were concerned um, you know, about making ends meet. So we put in place a four-part program. We reduced the cost of healthcare benefits in many cases, in most cases, by as much as 60%, which made a big difference because certainly in the United States and in other places, healthcare can be a regressive tax and it hits um, people at lower wages in a much higher degree. We gave everybody stock, restricted stock, not options, but restricted stock. So we made every single person in the company an owner um, and we made them eligible for receiving stock as we go forward. We adjusted wages where we felt that we were um, close to or needed to make adjustments in, in standards of livable wages. And then we created a full education program so that employees could feel that they could take this program and really start to think about their own financial security. Franz, on the, back, back to this, uh, uh, this financial security audit. Uh, and I know that there, there are striking statistics uh, uh, around Just Capital's research, for example, has shown, I think, that 50% of workers at Russell 1000 companies are not making enough to support a family of three, even yep. with a partner working part time. At the same time, I understand that um, uh, the average net worth of a white family is actually 10x more than a black family. And so we see this, this difference between Main Street and Wall Street, which is quite, uh, um, uh, quite staggering. Now, I can imagine, though, other uh, senior executives listening to this saying, well, OK, that's, that's a big challenge. It is important, therefore, to pay that minimum wage and, and, and increase the benefits and increase investments and training. Is that a necessary cost, though? Or have you also seen some benefits? Has it act, does it actually have an yeah. ROI? And Franz, before you answer, I just want to interject for those listeners not familiar with Just Capital. It's a nonprofit organization that studies companies' impact on all of society's stakeholders and ranks the largest U.S. corporations based on their actions on major social issues. Yeah, we have seen, uh, we saw benefits almost right away and they're accruing. In the last year, let me just also say, in the last year, we have moved net disposable income um, so that now there is no one at PayPal's net disposable income is not uh, over 18%. Uh, 
-hmm. and we're and we're headed towards 20 this year we've seen um impacts in the um in the amount of health care that people are taking that they're taking uh, more and more of the health care benefits and able to undertake the full policy we're seeing increases in 401k enrollment increases in our employee stock purchase program where our data is showing that our employees are reporting less uh, stress on making ends meet we're seeing better uh, and more retention and we have incredibly high engagement scores and the engagement scores are are you know were higher during the pandemic than they were before and i think that they connect uh, in part to the fact that our employee community feels that kind of financial security let me also just say that we, we you mentioned Just Capital. We've entered into a partnership with uh, Just Capital and with uh, the Financial Health Network and the Good Jobs Institute to share our data and our information to really make this an, an open and transparent process so that we can share with other companies what we're learning, what we're seeing as the, as the outcomes, and and working to build a coalition of companies. Because one of the insights we had is, imagine if a huge number of the great employers in the around the world started to really focus on the full financial health of their employees. That has an effect on every community. It has an effect um, on the way in which our economies work. It can make a big difference. It's interesting, Franz, because I think that there are a couple of markers and lessons in the story so far. One is this notion of super serving and starting with one stakeholder. You know, UPS you know, started with anyone who touched the package. That was the small businesses, yeah. businesses that sent the package. And, and physically, literally is probably how it started. The employee who carried the package that led to this, you know, super retention, you know, competition yeah. for best jobs, thinking about the whole family. So my point is the starting point of one stakeholder, employees, it could be um, regulators, right? You can think of other examples where you start with one and go really deep. The second marker I think that's important, Franz, is that you know, and these days with technology platforms, the you know there is no absence of data; it's just your absence of insight about your data. So my point is this notion of you know raising the average, getting people to learn the elements of an analytic, tailored approach to S. PayPal is going to be different than its competitor, than different than another industry. The answer will then, by definition, be different. And, um, and so sharing the methodology and getting the rest of us up the curve faster, you know, really does have system benefits if you think about something like health, sustainability, et cetera. Franz, to Vivian's point, how do you think about the responsibility of employers like PayPal versus the responsibility of governments and broader society? What sort of approach do you take at PayPal on this? You know, I think uh, we, we do about take a, sta a sort of multi-stakeholder approach. And I think it sort of informs the answer to that question. And we feel that we have five stakeholders um, and we focus on our employees, our customers, our, our shareholders, our, and our governments and regulators, and also society at large in the communities. We do put employees first, and we've been very clear about that, and we think that creates value across uh, the spectrum of our stakeholders because if you've got um, secure, and committed, and inspired employees, they're more passionate about their work, they serve customers um, in a different and more, um, you know, and more assertive and, and more um, positive way, 
we are we are regulated in 167 different countries and and we need our employees to be paying attention to the thinking about compliance and about risk management and um, also um, our employees volunteer and they work in communities and they're engaged in communities so we see that value creation for every stakeholder when we put our employees first and we're very clear about that in terms of what we you know our sense of responsibility you know we can't we can't address every issue but you know we live in a world where people are subject to uh, discrimination and intolerance and and violence and and economic stress and we can't solve all of the issues in our communities but we can always be and for our employees but we can be a responsible actor and we can do our part we can also do our part to address some of these societal questions of a word we have a major initiative that we have put in place to help close uh, the racial wealth gap in the in the united states and to support and empower uh, entrepreneurs and and small businesses in minority communities but i think our view is that companies do have uh, a responsibility and obligation to live their values to fulfill their mission and purpose and to also um, use their voice and to very often um, speak up on those values issues and to be responsible. But what's interesting is that it can also be quantified quite easily. You know, if you look at Unilever on its inclusive tailored brands, whether it's tailored in terms of the characteristics and affinity with its customers or the communities that produce the products, you know, they see those brands growing significantly faster. So my point is just to say, you can start with, with company-based metrics that really talk about pounds and P, dollars and cents, and then it very quickly can then be counted into a broader social impact so that you know, there's no lack of clarity about how it adds value, yeah. but also impacts broader society. Well, we do spend a lot of time also focusing on how we measure the social impact of our products. And uh, so we have a number of different products that are focused on products and services focused on small businesses. Mm -hmm. And we are particularly focused on small businesses who haven't had access to capital or haven't had access to full uh, to the digital economy. Our PayPal Working Capital product. We're one of the um, we're one of the top five lenders to small businesses um, in the United States, and and one of the largest also in the UK and other countries. Our working capital enables small businesses where they don't have a banking relationship, they don't have access to banking services, or they they can't afford the the fees and the structure. They can go online and they can get PayPal Working Capital, and our data shows that. You know, 70% of these PayPal working capital loans are going into the regions of the country where banks have pulled out um, over yep. time, for, sometimes for, for all kinds of good economic reasons. We know that small businesses, when they connect um, to PayPal, that they're able, that, that over 80% of them engage in global commerce. We also know that small businesses during the pandemic that were able to engage in global commerce did far, far better and were far more resilient than small businesses that were primarily local. So we can see that the work we do is having um, a positive impact on small businesses that have been struggling. Mm -hmm. And PayPal distributed over $2 billion in, um, in, pay, in, uh, in, pay, in paycheck protection program loans. Similarly, mm -hmm. we were able to help distribute stimulus checks online and they could get their stimulus checks much faster if they got them um, you know, digitally uh, into their, into their uh, digital wallets. So this sounds like a great example of leveraging your corporate superpower, but in support of S, which Bruce was talking about earlier. 
PayPal has a muscle that you develop through your core business, and you can flex it to benefit your stakeholders and broader society, as you just mentioned with the ability to scale distribution of stimulus checks. Yeah. Well, there mm-hmm. are many, many companies in the world that are good at other things. We are really good you know, at payments. We're really good at digital distribution, and we have a huge network of customers all around the globe. I'll give you another example. And so we've tried to really focus our social impact on what furthers the mission we've articulated and what are our core competencies that we can bring to bear for social impact, um, as opposed to just writing a check. We didn't create a foundation when we brought PayPal out of eBay. We put all of our social innovation focus into product services, programs, employee initiatives, um, and partnerships. Um, Another example is that we, we have the largest donation platform in the world. And so we have last year over $17 billion were given across PayPal um, to charities and causes uh, mm-hmm. that our customers care about. You know, the average size of those, of, of those gifts is under $100. So mm-hmm. this is a really, it is a democratizing of philanthropy, but it also enables us to, to really mobilize when there's a crisis. So if there's a hurricane or there's a flood or there's an earthquake or there's a storm, we can mobilize our donation platform to really focus and enable our customers to give in a focused way to relief organizations that's on the ground. And so it helps us focus and it also helps our employees sort of see the connectedness between the work they're doing and how we fulfill the mission. Similarly, when you talk about the dilemma of how do you choose your causes where you take a stand, we have really tried to focus on our values. And so when we look at a, uh, when there's a social question, a societal question, and we have to make that decision that all companies do, are we going to take the lead? Are we going to join in a coalition? Will we let other companies take, you know, will we let other companies bear this one? You know, we really draw on our value of inclusion and um, how, our mission is represented in the world to make those choices. But what it also allows you to have is a criteria-based way to have the discussion. Because in the same way that you can look at the cost to serve a small business in a rural location, you can also do the cost to serve on a social initiative. So when you decide to stop doing something, you know, should we go after this customer segment and you decide no? Or you think about CVS Pharmacy's decision to stop selling cigarettes. No doubt a profitable growth category. But at the same time, if you're fundamentally, if every other square inch of the store is about health and wellness, you know, self-agency and prevention are increasingly clinical in the back yeah. of larger pharmacies, you know, is it really consistent um, with that value? And so it allows you to frame the discussion in a criteria-based way. Franz, let's return for a bit to the earlier discussion about ROI. Have you found that investing and acting in close accordance with your purpose and values has had a positive impact on PayPal's bottom line? Well, look, you know, when we developed the first strategy for PayPal, I'll always remember, like, right on the front page of our first five-year strategy, we talked about the intersection of purpose and profit. And we have really looked at this as being a harmonious integration, that it's it's a false choice to think you need one without the other. And um, if you look at you know, PayPal's growth over the last five years and, you know, the expansion of our platform, 
we've grown from over the last five years from 160 odd customers to close to 400 million. And then, you know, our market cap has been growing year over year. Um, this is, you know, for us, the combination has been a strategic strength. And I think that's been true for our employees and for our stakeholders. But it doesn't mean that there haven't been some tough bumps here. I mean, we've taken some stands and positions that have resulted in our having to have armed guards at our doors. Our CEO needs security um, in a different way than, than when we started on this journey because some of the positions we took have brought out a lot of... Um, you know, aggressive opposition from some parts of uh, the world uh, because they felt that we shouldn't have taken the stand we took uh, in North Carolina on LGBTQ equality or that we shouldn't have taken a position that we took on guns. You know, all of those decisions were based on, you know, how we would live our values and what was our responsibility to, for our platform and, that, you know, the PayPal platform and that we feel we've got to also um, take responsibility. But it, it creates some, um, you know, there are costs to this. PayPal is part of a very fast-growing industry and operates a highly efficient digital platform, but many other companies don't have PayPal's agility and capabilities. This is a question for um, both Vivian and Franz. How would you recommend that other, perhaps more traditional incumbent companies approach embedding the S into their corporate purpose? So a couple of things to give companies that might be a little slower growing than PayPal um, some hope. One is an experience like the pandemic can be like the reset moment. And you can, it's almost like don't waste a good crisis. You know, what are we going to do differently on E? Okay, we've not been working on E for many years, but are we a little bit afraid of S? You know, and, and they were just doing it with diversity and inclusion, but not the other system factors. So I just would encourage us to think about, you know, whenever you have a moment to hit reset, in a business, which is often, right? and you can reallocate resources and make different decisions, you can create that reset moment and add one stakeholder, add one area that you want to build as a distinctive strength. So, yeah, there's a huge amount of learning from this year of the pandemic um, uh, about how companies have taken responsibility and how they've uh, chosen um, to focus on their stakeholders and their customers. And, and how, what kind of resilience uh, they've shown. And particularly the S, I think the S and ESG is really becoming the largest. Franz, Vivian, Bruce, thank you all so much for joining us today. It's been an enlightening and inspiring discussion. And thank you to everyone for listening. As I mentioned earlier, you'll find the prior two podcasts in this ESG series on your podcast player and on the Inside the Strategy Room page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. You can also follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and connect with us on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.